Welcome back. We're doing another episode of Bush School Uncorked, and today we're lucky enough to have several Bush School faculty with us, get more of a treat even over and above uh, Dr. Galls and I, and we're going to be talking about, or at least starting our conversation today, about um, education, and we're going to hear from an economist, uh, my boss, Dr. Lori <laughs> Taylor, and she's done a lot of work in particular on education in Texas, so that'll be the case we're dealing with mostly today, um, which is nice because that also happens to be where we are. And so um, I'm going to let the guests uh, introduce themselves, that way you can become acquainted with their voices, and then we're going to spend some time uh, talking with Dr. Taylor about education in Texas. Hi, Justin. I'm Lori Taylor. I am the head of the Public Service Administration Department, and as such, your boss <laughs> at the yep. Bush School. Uh, I am an economist by training. I've been at the Bush School since 2003. Thank you for coming today. I am pleased to be here. Dr. Bowman? Hi, Justin. I'm Ann Bowman, and uh, I'm a faculty member in the Bush School. I've been at uh, Texas A&M for about uh, 10 years now, and my focus of research and teaching is primarily American state and local government. And I am Gregory Gauze, your co-host, Justin, <laughs> on Bush School Uncorked. And I'm head of the International Affairs Department at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. I also want to uh, thank our, our hosts, Downtown Uncorked in Bryan, Texas, uh, which, who have uh, turned over a table to us and allowed us to use their facilities for, for uh, creating this podcast. So thanks to Uncorked. You're getting the... Uh the radio voice down, Greg. I'm going to have to catch up. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, I'm going to start with a couple questions for you, uh, Lori. And to before we jumped into kind of some of the specifics of some of your work on education and uh, improving education, I wanted to deal with a couple of concepts related to education and uh, viewing education from an economist's point of view. Um, I'm not an economist, but I do teach economics and have an economics undergrad. And so I want to work through a couple of concepts that I know will be important for talking about education and in particular public education. Sure. And so uh, the two terms that we hear a lot in the academic debate and somewhat in the public debate are these terms of efficiency and equity and whether or not there are trade-offs, whether or not we're doing well on one of those or both of those. And so in particular with the education domain, and we're going to be talking about K through 12 uh, predominantly, um, how do you think about, as an, as an economist and someone who does research in this area, how do you think of these concepts of efficiency and equity to kind of help frame our discussion? Sure, great. So the, the basic concepts of efficiency and equity have been very important in education finance and education circles for a very long time. Uh, the, the notions of efficiency having to do with whether or not you're able to accomplish your goals and uh, produce as much as possible in your education system given the resources available to you, given the constraints, given the needs of the students in the educational setting, given the size of the school. But efficiency is basically about pinching every penny till it hurts, about mm -hmm. getting to maximize your uh, outcomes and accomplishments given your budget. Equity is about distributing the resources in a way that is fair to the students who are involved in the schools. There are also some very historical notions of equity. Is equity to taxpayers? Is a taxpayer 
has to pay a certain amount of tax on their residents, for example. How much tax do they have to pay as individuals to be able to introduce a, an additional dollar in spending at the local school? And the reason why that doesn't quite match up, that I pay a dollar in tax and the school district gets a dollar, is because we have school funding formulas that spread the money around and redistribute according to student need. And the funding formulas in just about every state are designed to um, reduce the correlation between the wealth of the community and the resources available to the students who attend school within that community. Objective here is to provide each child with the opportunity to succeed and to thrive and mm -hmm. to provide them with the resources required to do so. And the observation, of course, is that some kids need more resources than others in order to be able to accomplish similar kinds of goals. Some kids have very advantaged home environments. And if their teacher doesn't teach them Algebra two, that's okay, mom can. But other kids, the school is the only real source of intellectual uh, stimulus. Mm -hmm. that the, these kids are going to get. And so the school has to compensate for the fact that some kids have parents who can help them with their homework, and some kids have parents that are working three jobs and aren't in a position mm -hmm. to help them with their homework. And that redistribution of resources is what we think about when we think about equity. And so there's differences not only in how much kind of community resources or community dollars there are for a tax base across different districts, but then there's this other question on the equity side, which that's an equity question. There's also equity on the, the student side, which is how prepared are the students to be in the classroom? And some students, for, for a variety of reasons, might be uh, very well prepared or less prepared. And these, which, uh, these weighted um, funding functions that you mentioned, which I want to talk more about, are sort of ways to say, hey, we think, uh, and I believe this is the way Texas does it as well, each student is going to cost X amount of dollars on average, and then we're going to adjust that based on whether a student is, is going to require more time and effort um, mm -hmm. from the school or compared to whether they'll take less time. Is that kind of what you mean by weighted? Well, basically what, what's going on is that there's a, a very long and, la and literature on the cost of education. It's what, what resources are required to get this child to accomplish this performance goal, like passing a standardized test or graduating from high school. And the literature is, is very clear that there are certain kinds of uh, contexts that require more resources than others. There are differences in the goals that are set. Does the state have a really rigorous um, testing regime or a, a, a much less uh, te rigorous testing regime? So that states that are shooting for higher targets need more resources than states mm -hmm. that are shooting for lower targets. You have differences in the, the cost of providing services because of differences in student need. Economically disadvantaged children need more resources than other children. Children who are limited English proficient children need additional resources to reach proficiency so that they can do the reading and the writing and the arithmetic in, in the language of instruction in that state. The um, schools that are uh, small lack economies of scale and it can take more resources to operate a school in rural Texas than it would in, say, College Station, Texas. Mm -hmm. And then there are differences in the, uh, 
the prices that schools have to pay for their most important resources, which are namely the teachers, the personnel, mm -hmm. the administrators. Uh, so that the cost of living is high in one community, relatively low in another, then you have to pay higher wages to be able to attract good teachers in a community where the cost of living is high. And you can, you can pay somewhat lower wages to attract good teachers in a community where the cost of living is low, as long as the, the amenities of urban life are available to those folks. So th there's, there's these, all these factors that say that equalizing the funding is not going to be equitable that you have to have uh, more resources in situations where the input prices are high, where the needs are deep, where there's a lack of economies of scale. And so funding formulas exist to try and react to this. The problem we run into as researchers is while we have a strong consensus that these differences in student need, these economies of scale, these input prices, they all drive differences in cost, it's Zippo consensus as about how much more. You know, mm. How much more does it take to educate an economically disadvantaged kid? How much more does it take to educate a limited English proficient kid is very contextual. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a real good feel for that. And yet we want to design uh, funding formulas that ensure that each school has the resources required to serve the population that it serves. So this is a real measurement problem then, right? It's I mean, a huge to, measurement yeah. problem. You can, you can talk about just one of the very fundamental measurement problems in education is uh, which kids are economically disadvantaged? What does poverty mean in this context? Well, we know that most states use some variant of are the kids eligible for free and reduced price lunches? If they're receiving subsidized school lunches, then they're identified as economically disadvantaged. And we might add in if they're a foster child or if they are uh, a high mobility child or some other characteristics to identify economically disadvantaged kids. Problem we run into is we use the same definition of economically disadvantaged in New York City in, as we do in Dalhart, Texas. The, the income threshold is the same in both those locations. But in New York City, the poverty level income threshold is going to be completely consumed by the rent on a two-bedroom apartment. Whereas in rural Texas, your lifestyle may not be lush, but there are resources in your household that are not available to a identified as poor kid elsewhere in the country. So when we say economically disadvantaged in Texas, we're talking about a very different group of folks than if we say economically disadvantaged elsewhere in the state. What is it that, how does Texas go about doing this? So a bunch of states have these weighted mm -hmm. funding. Well, I guess maybe before we go to that, are they, uh, is the empirical evidence, is it, is the, do we have evidence of whether they've worked out theoretically like we think they should? You've done some work on this. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they haven't, or we don't have data on it. Funding formulas are typically a uh, hodgepodge of political constructs uh, occasionally informed by scholarship, but, but uh, occasionally not. Um, there are uh, a large fraction of the states make some sort of adjustment for uh, poverty or, e or English language learner standards, but not all of them. And uh, the states use very different strategies for making these kinds of adjustments according to kid need. Um, Interesting. So there's no so, like, uniform there, no, no, there's no, there's no uniform um, standard. Wait, because there's no uniform definition that, that's really yeah. talking about know, standards of living for these kids yeah. in the various locations. So, so there isn't a, a uniform set of weights. There's a general 
consensus that there needs to be more resources in needier locations. Mm -hmm. uh, but how many more resources, we don't really know. In the funding formula for Texas, okay, the, the funding formula uh, provides an additional 20% in resources to any school district that for each economically disadvantaged child. Okay. So a kid in regular instruction will get X dollars. Uh, a kid who is economically advantaged will get 1.2 times X. Mm -hmm. So that there, there's additional resources is about 20%. Some people uh, think that that adjustment is low. But on the other hand, in Texas, what we've done is we have the regular education kid on average is economically disadvantaged. In some sense, the base is higher then the differential is small yeah. uh, compared to other states. But it, it's, you know, complex. It's what keeps mm -hmm. the economists mm -hmm. in business. <laughs> keeps questions to be answered. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, um, Texas uh, doesn't rank particularly high in educational outcomes for students in K through 12 compared to other states. Um, is that true? And has this has we seen changes in outcomes in Texas with these uh, with the implementation of weighted student funding in particular? Has it helped in Texas in particular? Do we know? Well, I would kind of push back on the idea that the outcomes are are low in Texas. I mean, they there really aren't very aren't a lot of, of tools for comparison across the states in terms of performance. Mm -hmm. uh, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or the NAEP, is the, the test that's given in all states. And it's given to a sample that's mm -hmm. trying to take nation's temperature with respect to education, not necessarily the state's temperature. Yeah. Um, but what the NAEP will tell you is that Texas is kind of middle of the pack right. in terms of uh, the percentage of students forming at, at, performing at certain levels of proficiency. Now, one of the reasons why we are the middle of the pack is because of our demographic mix of students, that um, we have more economically disadvantaged students. Well, I told you that we don't measure it right, so mm -hmm. you know, take that with a grain of salt, but we have a, a greater fraction of uh, underrepresented minority students. And on average, nationally, they tend to perform uh, less well than um, Anglo kids. So there's a mix question here in looking at the test scores for Texas. But we're pretty much middle of the road uh, as a state. Our graduation rates are quite good. Um, partially that may indicate that it is not as painful to graduate from a Texas school system as it is in some other states with more uh, rigorous exit exams. Sure. Um, so I think that gives a nice, um, uh, a nice background to the, to education and the, what, I mean, was, that would have been a really short lecture. That would have been 15 minutes. That's not, that's just getting warmed up. Yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> but I want to shift to some of your work and questions along the way of how to improve uh, mm -hmm. education on these two dimensions we started with. So how to make education more efficient, I suppose, mm -hmm. and particularly, I think the work we're going to look at, a lot of the work you've done, is in Texas as a context, and addressing the um, the equity concerns. Mm -hmm. And so we talked a little bit about the the problems with the weighted student funding. Mm -hmm. um, 
are do you have ideas on how to it seems it seems like theoretically that still makes more sense than just a blanket average per student yep. um, is yep. there ways to improve upon mm -hmm. the actual weights or getting that right well the, the idea of weighted student funding is is gotten a little complicated recently because when people in the literature talk about weighted student funding they're really talking about at the school level within the school district okay. and not about the funding weights between school districts. And so there, there's two ways to go about this. In the state of Texas, it's a funding formula that says an economically disadvantaged kid generates 20% more revenue, roughly, than a kid who is not economically disadvantaged. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and that goes into the district. Mm -hmm. But then the question has arisen for a lot of folks, once it goes from the district down to the school, do the schools that serve economically disadvantaged kids get 20% more? Uh, is 20% the right weight? Got it. And if it's the right weight at the district level, should it also be the right weight at the school level? Mm -hmm. And what we observe is that the internal to the district's allocation of resources is in many ways less equal than mm -hmm. the between district allocation mm -hmm. of resources. And there's, there's inequity in both of those dimensions. But one of the, the issues of concern, one that's given rise to this current research interest in weighted student funding is about using weights inside a school district to allocate the resources to the campus. And then it gets wrapped up in this idea of site-based management and if you give a school extra resources, how can it spend them? And then it gets wrapped up in this other <laughs> idea, that we, which is that most of the reason why spending varies within a, um, a school district is about personnel about where the people work and whether the teachers in this particular building are more highly experienced than the people in this other building. They tend to get paid better if they're more highly experienced. So you will observe that if you had two schools, both of them had exactly, you know, one kid, one teacher for every 20 kids, but in the one school the teacher had 15 years of experience and the other school the teacher had five years of experience that you would be spending more money in the school with 15 years of experience. And that would get me really worried, except of course that we've basically been completely unable to find any research support for the idea that that extra 10 years of experience does anything in terms of the classroom effectiveness of teachers. There are really good teachers with five years of experience, and there are really not good teachers with 20 years of experience. And additional endurance is not essentially the same thing as classroom effectiveness. Teachers get better in the first few years, so we pay a lot of attention to beginning teachers. Mm -hmm. But once you get past that rookie experience, when you once you get hit your stride as a teacher, there's not these huge year-over-year -year gains in classroom effectiveness. But there are huge increases in money. So a lot of what looks like it in equity within a district is because of this school has attracted all the experienced teachers, and this school has relatively inexperienced teachers. It's not really a obvious that the school with lots of experienced teachers are getting better instruction. But we're definitely spending more there. Laurie, so. where does the money come from? For, uh, for these equity adjustments, for the, the formula funding. Is it all raised within the district? In other words, the state says, here's your profile of students, here's how much money you have to raise. My impression, and I don't know anything about this, is that some of that money is redistributed across the state from richer districts to poorer districts. Mm -hmm. 
How does that work? Yeah, um, just about every state has a funding formula that does some of that redistribution within the state. And the extent to which they redistribute depends on the, on the state. In Texas, uh, the, the funding formula, which we lovingly refer to as Robin Hood, operates to redistribute the resources from the greater property wealth districts to districts the state formula perceives as being of low wealth. Uh, and that has uh, a couple of important characteristics to it. One of which is that it's the state has largely disconnected the wealth of the community from the spending of the school because the funding formula is, is redistributive in that way. But the way that it's been implemented is to essentially say, at least in, in tier one, which is the foundation part of the formula, that there is a, a, a target revenue for your district that you, you, the state expects you to receive. And you have a tax base, you raise what you can, and the state will top up the tank. The state will provide additional resources to bring you up to that, what's called the foundation level. And that's, what, that's the part of the formula for basic education. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, foundation formula and the the important feature of this is that if your local tax base were to grow because of economic growth and development any of these kinds of things that will increase what the state expects you to kick into the bucket but not increase the total amount that you're allowed that you will receive under the funding formula it's the state benefits from the rise in local property values the district not at all Okay, so as a consequence of this trying to disconnect district wealth from the resources for the kids, we have ourselves in a situation where an increase in the uh, tax base for a school district doesn't necessarily generate a dime more for the schools. And what if the, what if the local school district wants to spend more than the state thinks they should be spending? The, the formula is set up so that in the foundation there and in the second piece of this, which is called Tier 2, there are recapture provisions, which essentially if you raise more revenue than, than the thresholds in the funding formula, the state will retain any of your additional revenue from local taxation. So all, all of it, not just a percentage of it? All of it. All of it. But the, the way the, the funding formula has in some sense... Three, well, a whole lot more than that, but simplifying it, three pieces. There's the foundation, and there is what's called the golden pennies, which if you, like that. Golden if, you if you, in this small range of tax rates, uh, any revenue you raise, you get to keep. Okay. Okay. If you go above the threshold, you get to keep whatever you raise. If you raise less than a promised amount, the state will ensure that you get that promised amount for the golden pennies. Then you get into the copper pennies, the copper pennies are redistributed again. So um, the, the formula is nasty complex, but what it does to the, the local taxpayer is that it's really hard to figure out if I were to pay an extra $100 in tax, what, if anything, would my local school receive? Uh, in some situations, it's you know, incredibly advantageous. I pay an extra dollar in tax and my school gets an extra six, seven, eight. But there are other situations where I pay an extra dollar in tax and my local school gets basically nothing. 
So I wanted to ask a question related to that, and that involves mm -hmm. uh, property tax caps, which is a topic the legislature is very likely to take up in mm -hmm. its upcoming session. One of the rationales uh, for, for pro local property tax caps, of course, is to, um, is to basically bail out some local property owners who feel as if they are paying far too much mm -hmm. in property taxes, and their taxes simply go up and go up and go up unrelentingly. And um, a lot of that is going to the school district, right? So what's going to happen if the legislature doesn't does enact property tax caps? Okay, so um, the big kahuna of property tax mm -hmm. caps has been California's Proposition 13. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's some pretty good literature that traces Prop 13 back to school finance reform in California. Uh, that basically the funding formula said, you know, you raise the money locally, but we're going to spread it around. And Prop 13's reaction was, well, then we're going to starve you. <laughs> yeah. Then, then right. uh, if, if the money can't be spent locally, then you can't have the money. Uh, and so the property tax caps coming into Texas are slightly less draconian property tax caps than, than Proposition 13 in California, the font of all good policy decisions is California. So the um, what's likely to happen with this is if the governor were to impose a property tax cap, then you would buy a house, you would have your property taxes, and then your value for appraisal purposes and therefore your tax bill would only go up at a certain limited rate from one year to the next, two and a half percent. Okay. And over time that can create this huge wedge between me and my neighbor because I bought my house back in the day. Mm -hmm. And so my appraised value is stuck at one, at two and a half percent above, uh, going up two and a half percent each year. From so the, day the appraisal, I bought it. so the appraisal, appraisal can only go up two and a half percent, not the tax rate. No, the, the, the appraisal, appraisal can only go up two and a half percent. Well, so much for the market. It becomes very much not a market, yeah. uh, and so what you get is your house because you just bought. You're paying uh, a tax on the purchase price. I'm paying a tax on the purchase price circa thirty years ago which means two neighbors receiving exact same services from government are paying vastly different tax, in potentially identical houses, are paying mm. vastly different tax burdens mm. based on longevity. But the other thing is, what does it do to the schools, which was your yeah. original question. Mm -hmm. uh, and that depends on the funding formula. If what happens is that the, uh, the state limits the, incre the annual increases in appraised value, uh, then the uh, there will be there will not be these increases, but the foundation formula in the formula still says the, the revenue for the school will be X dollars. The fact that the local tax base can't go up very much doesn't change the foundation, so it doesn't change the revenue to the school district at all. So the state would just the state has be on to the hook. The state becomes on the hook. Okay. For things, whereas the state under the current structure benefits mm -hmm. from rising values, the state is is on the hook mm -hmm. for uh, a uh, an appraisal cap that would prevent rising values. Well, it is an election season, so I think we're, we're beginning to hear more of. This. Certainly, the lieutenant governor is um, uh, talking about this uh, quite a bit. So earlier, um, you made an interesting point that I just wanted to highlight that. 
as uh, addressing some of these concerns of equity, that mm -hmm. there are equity concerns in Texas across school districts mm -hmm. and the way in which the state allocates mm -hmm. its funding to districts. Mm -hmm. And then there's um, uh, concerns about equity within a district. So once it, yes. once it has its set of, set of funds, then the way in which it distributes it to its different campuses uh, is, a, is an important concern of equity. And so um, I didn't quite think about that when I was thinking through the funding. Um, what are the, um, do they, do the formulas at the local level end up looking a lot like the ones at the state level? Or is there a lot of room for differences and coming up with the weights that we aren't sure are any good anyways? Or do they end up being the same, just out of curiosity? They, they, they very rarely end up being the same. Okay. Um, the the districts in Texas that use weighted student funding, like say Houston ISD, have their own sets of weights. There are additional things that they use to redistribute funding within the state, uh, within their district, that are not in the state funding formula. Um, which would worry me if we believed that the state funding formula weights were right. Mm -hmm. But since they haven't been really revisited in decades, Maybe the experimentation is useful. <laughs> well, I don't know that it's experimentation, but what it, what it is is, is a, a, a local attempt to figure out what the weights should be. What, what really needs to happen is more of a, a scholarly attempt to figure out what the weights should be and uh, some, some research along those lines. So the work that I've done has not been has been to look a lot at these relationships between outcomes and, and funding and the constraints and the kids and these kinds of things. And it generates estimates of appropriate funding formula weights. And typically what that, those, those analyses tell me is that the, the funding formula weight for poverty in Texas is a little low, but not horribly low. Uh, the funding formula weight for ELL is probably half what it ought to be. Um, that special education resourcing is really hard to think about as on average because special education kids are so very different across different contexts uh, and that one of the big drivers of funding in Texas needs to be economies of scale that small rural districts are much more expensive to operate than large urban districts and the formula recognizes some of that but not enough of it who sets the formula? Is that is that the legislature or is that a, 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 an executive it's the office? The legislature, it's the sets, legislature the formula. sets the formula. But but this is an incredibly complicated thing. So who actually suggests it to the? Who, who does the staff work for the legislature on that? Is it is it the governor's uh, office? Is it the state department of education? Who I mean, wh where do they get the starting point for the formula? Right at the moment, there's a commission meeting to come up with uh, proposed revisions to the funding formula. Quite frankly, historically, the starting point has typically been, what did the court make us do? Oh, so this is mandated by the court. This particular round is not, but previously, uh, major school funding reform has been heavily, heavily influenced by a, a court decision. Texas Supreme Court? Texas Supreme Court. How long ago was that? Uh, the um, most recent decision was that the Supreme Court court uh, essentially said that they did not require any reform, and that was a couple years ago. Uh, prior to that, there was West Orange Cove, which was 2006, 
and in that decision the court ruled that the uh, state uh, structure was a de facto statewide property tax which violated the Texas Constitution and so reform was required. They did not make a ruling on equity adjustments or poverty weights or whether the cost of education index, which is the piece of the formula that adjusts for mm -hmm. labor cost differences, should be updated. Um, and so we continue to operate under a, a regional labor cost adjustment that was estimated in uh, 1991 based on 1989 data. And the Texas State Supreme Court is an elected body. And I would love to get into the politics of that when we get into the round table. Uh, well, I think that's a great time to transition. Um, this was, uh, oh, go ahead. Thank you. Jump in with no, your question. No, let me um, just, because it, it's related, because you talked about economies uh -huh. of scale, and you talked about reform and funding. Consolidation of school districts in Texas, why not? There are um, a couple of reasons for not. There, there, there are definitely some situations where consolidation makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And if, if you don't want to do formal consolidation, you would want to do some co-op, some buying sure. cooperatives right. kinds right. of things, sharing of a special yeah. education instructor, an art teacher, something like that. So you, you definitely could be more coordination than mm -hmm. the currently is. And there are what the state calls shared service agreements that so structures already exist for that sort of thing. But most of the economies of scale are, in, according to my work, at the school level, not at the district level. It's the, the real cost driver is not the overlay that every small district has a superintendent, mm -hmm. because even with a, a small district, you, you have the big cost driver is the fact that when you have a, a small school, you have... 12 fifth graders. If you sweep up every kid in a 100-mile radius and you still have 12 fifth graders, you're going to have a very labor-intensive classroom structure mm -hmm. compared to, say, 20 to 22 fifth graders in a classroom. So the school level is where a lot of the excessive costs of being small are housed. It's the classroom in many ways because so you could benefit from consolidation if you were willing to consolidate the schools, not just the districts, not just the central administration and the overhead, but the schools to get to larger schools, which would be cheaper to operate. Uh, no problem, town wants to lose its school. school right. And right. no parent wants to put their kid yeah. on the bus for three right. hours right. and have to drive two to get to a parent-teacher conference. Right. In, in sparsely populated parts of the state. It just doesn't make a lot of sense for other reasons to think about consolidating the elementary schools up to what would be a cost-effective size. In urban areas, consolidating up to a cost-effective size makes a whole lot of sense, but most districts are already at cost-effective <clears> size. <throat> the benefit in the urban areas would only occur if they were willing to uh, consolidate the schools. And if you have not seen anything bloody until you've seen a battle <laughs> yeah. over trying right. to close right. a school sure. for right. being uh, uneconomically small. Yeah, ask, uh, ask Rahm Emanuel and the mayor of Chicago about that. Yeah, it's, no, it, yeah. it's just absolutely it's bloody and it doesn't happen. Yeah. So most of the, the lack of economies mm -hmm. of scale is that you can't get to cost-effective classrooms. Got it. Right. Good. And as a result, consolidation in rural Texas wouldn't help in a lot of contexts. 
Well, thank you. We'll shift the attention off from just pestering you with their peppering you with questions. No all about me. <laughs> we still will need our uh, resident economist's opinion on uh, or analysis on some of the conversations. We're going to shift into panel discussion, and uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, this issue of, of the politics of education plays into the campaigns, as Ann mentioned. And uh, I'm relatively new to Texas. Uh, this is just my fifth year here. And I, I don't really understand how these education issues play in. Ann mentioned that, that the Lieutenant Governor, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, has made property tax uh, caps uh, a major issue in the campaign. But Ann, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit more about how how you see uh, the politics of this playing out, not just in this election, but maybe more generally? Well, the politics plays out at, at the state level and at the local level as well. And at the, at the state level, what you're really doing is looking at uh, statewide elected officials and their interest in, in commitment to uh, public education, as well as legislative races. And a lot of the, the legislative races do end up focusing on education. And, mm. and you know, to me, it's, it's interesting and I think fairly good that a number of Texas legislators are in fact uh, from public education. They're former school teachers, they're former school superintendents, principals. So, so for example, on the House Education Committee, you have a number of folks who actually have real world experience besides being a student, but uh, running a, a classroom or, or a school system. And I think that's beneficial in terms of making public policy. But in terms of, of uh, statewide races, uh, education does seem to be a, 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 a big issue. We had uh, Representative John Rainey from uh, this area, from the Bryan College Station area, uh, in the state and local government class recently, and right at the top of his list of issues is, is public education, and, and public education finance was mm -hmm. uh, a big part of that. So I think you'll see, the, see these issues really um, really front and center in the upcoming legislative was he Was he in favor of property tax caps like uh, that Laurie... Talked he did, about. He, did, he uh, was very uh, uh, reluctant to endorse property tax caps. Um, this might end up being a House Senate issue. I'm not quite sure. Um, it's, it's. I mean, we have Republican domination of both the House and the Senate right now. Right. But, but once you get into the House with with folks representing basically a district of, of about 170,000 people, um, education becomes much more very uh, personal uh, to them. So he was very reluctant to endorse that. Um, so, but he does acknowledge the need to think about and perhaps reform the way we do education finance. But not in the way of, of a California-style no, property not, tax not in that way. caps. No. So, no. so, so it, it, the, the politics here are the closer, the, the smaller your district in, in House versus Senate, mm -hmm. the more you see the, the, the potential result, potential negative results of property tax caps on on your own schools that, whereas in a senate district it you might it might be more kind of uh, it, it 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 would be a wash and that you know the richer places in your district would do better and the poorer places would do worse yeah, okay that, that certainly seems to be the case i mean the uh, the, I mean, the Senate certainly has expertise in, in, in public education as well, uh, but, but the folks in the House seem to be a little more sensitive to these, uh, uh, to these issues okay. of, of finance and impact on school districts. And we have a, an elected school board, statewide school board in Texas. Laurie, is there any kind of, of, uh, 
of research on what the difference is between states that don't have an elected statewide school board or maybe an elected state education official, chief state education official, and those who don't have uh, uh, elections at the state level for education positions? Uh, I haven't seen anything specific on that all. I'm yeah. sure that, that some scholar has, has taken it up. Uh, but one of the things to remember about Texas is Texas is amongst all the states one with the, some of the most atomistic uh, school structures. Okay. We have more than a thousand school districts in this state. A uh, met single metropolitan area will have more than 50 school districts to choose from uh, for some of the larger metropolitan areas. So there's a whole lot of what the economists love in TBU competition mm -hmm. amongst the school districts. But what that means is that the school districts are small. And the um, connection to a legislature is more direct. That, that a legislator could be the only one representing this particular district. Whereas in other states where you have much more aggregate county level school districts, for example, you're going to have multiple house members representing a single school district. We also have an elected Supreme Court. And I don't see much campaigning for those positions. Uh, I haven't gotten any mail from candidates for the Supreme Court. Do candidates for the Supreme Court in Texas take positions? I mean, do they take campaign positions? Will they tell you, you know, I think that uh, property tax rates are too high too, or I mean, or is there is there a norm that you don't that you don't put out campaign? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I, 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 I as well have not seen much. So many of these races are uncontested. Right. So uh, incumbents just get reelected and reelected, uh, and and as a consequence, uh, there isn't the uh, kind of um, um, Beto O'Rourke, uh, Ted Cruz kind of competition that we're seeing right now for the U.S. Senate. And the, I guess one of the other factors is when there are contested races, they they do take campaign contributions and and. They may not uh, explicitly state a position on an issue, but you can look at who's contributing yeah. to their campaign, so you get a pretty good idea of right. where they are. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, there, there's a there's a debate in the literature about about a, uh, how we elect, whether we should elect like judges, and, right. and what the consequence of electing judges is, especially in partisan versus nonpartisan elections. Uh, and, and, whether, and in Texas, they're partisan elections. And they're elections. partisan elections in yeah. Texas, yes. So, so I mean, there's, there is a lot of research on that, as well as gubernatorial appointment as an alternative in, in a more of what is called a merit system for selecting judges. There is real concern uh, about the influence of money in, uh, uh, in the judicial system uh, these days, and big money in a lot of these races, especially Supreme Court races. And, and gubernatorial uh, appointment would solve that problem? Now, the argument is that gubernatorial appointment would make the would make the judicial branch a bit more accountable, at least to another mm -hmm. elected official. But it would remove them from a direct election. So I'm, I moved down to Texas from Vermont, mm -hmm. and, and you can imagine things are a little different going mm -hmm. from Bernie Sanders to Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in Vermont, the state supreme court basically ordered the complete overhaul of the state finance, state educational financing system. These are. Uh, this is not an elected Supreme Court. It doesn't even. It doesn't have a retention vote, mm -hmm. uh, and it it in effect uh, uh, completely redrew. Ordered the legislature to completely redraw the the uh, 
state funding system so that we would have a statewide property tax. And, and I, I lived in a pretty uh, prosperous town uh, in Vermont, and my property taxes more than doubled, right, when the, the, mm -hmm. uh, this funding formula went through. But, you know, you had to do it because the state Supreme Court said so. Now, if they had been elected officials, I doubt they would have done that. Uh, but they've been not, Texans. They couldn't because the Constitution opposed So tell me about that. The, the Texas Constitution says what about the property Texas taxes? The Texas Constitution prohibits a statewide property tax. So where does the money come for, for these equity adjustments? The money comes from general revenue of the state, which in Texas oh. is almost exclusively a sales tax, a little bit from severance taxes, uh, and the bit corporate of oil income money. tax was franchise tax. Uh -huh. uh, so, but it's, it's basically from the general revenue of the state. There, it's not a statewide property tax by by word of the constitution. For the same reason, there is no statewide income tax, and uh, those have just been codified in the Texas Constitution for quite some time. So the Texas, so that the, these elected members of the Texas Supreme Court have to basically deal with equity questions at law, and I'm sure that there are plenty of people who will go to the courts and say the, 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 the education funding system is inequitable mm -hmm. for X population, poorer, poorer districts, poorer students, right? And, and they have to then legislate the equity question within the constraints of there can be no statewide property tax and, of course, no statewide income. The, the Constitution of Texas requires, quote, an efficient system for the general diffusion of knowledge. So there's been a whole lot of uh, discussion about what, what the heck's efficient, right, right. what's the heck's diffusion, and right. which the heck knowledge are we talking about. Yeah. So it, it doesn't give you a whole lot of guidance on some of these issues. And a lot of the, the I mean, back in, what was it, the 70s, that Rodriguez-San Antonio case, right. which was about disparities in school funding, mm -hmm. was actually a federal... Uh, it was a federal, federal case. Pursued in federal courts. And, and was bounced. there... It, yeah. I mean, it lost yeah. at the federal level. It lost at the federal back, level. Pushed back to, pushed the, back to the, the state, state courts. Mm -hmm. And there's been no, no recourse to the federal courts since then on, on Texas educational issues? No. Okay. Not, that I'm, not that I can recall. Interesting. So go, go ahead. Yeah, Justin. I had a, a one back on kind of state level funding that I sort of stumbled into this debate, and it was surprising to me that it was a debate, but it was uh, on Twitter among policy experts in Texas, mm -hmm. and it was about whether Texas state level funding has been increasing or not over the past few years, and the my understanding of the situation was that there was like a a graph that had been posted from a major state agency that showed that funding had been going up over the past few years, but there were questions about whether that was true or whether that included inflation, I think was one of the concerns that I was stumbling across. Do you, do you know? Just uh, I'm not sure what graph you're talking about, but what's been going on is the, uh, the per-pupil funding has been... Um, in the last few years, pretty much steady, which means no inflation adjustment. So on an inflation adjustment basis, the per-pupil spending has been slipping. Uh, the uh, total, the number of kids has been growing. So total outlays have been rising. But the big dominant force here has been that in this foundation formula thing with the topping up that I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. which is that as 
property valuations and tax base has been rising in the state with the recovery, the beneficiary of that has been the state, not the local districts. And so they have had been basically holding the line on the total revenue going to the schools and districts, but an increasingly large share of that is coming from local coffers as opposed to state coffers. So the state share has been shrinking where but in some sense, if you really, if what you care about is the resources reaching the kids, you should never look at the state in, in isolation. You have to think about the state and the local combined. Is, are there any politicians in Texas right now running for office saying the state, the state has to spend more money on education? The state should be sending more money to the districts, or is or is the the issue driving Dan Patrick saying we got to cap property tax rates? I, I have not. I, I am sure there are some, uh, especially house races, mm -hmm. where that's where that's uh, uh, a recurring theme. Mm -hmm. I have not seen statewide officials, other than Dan Patrick, um, who's elected statewide. Mm -hmm. um, I have not seen statewide officials. Um, using this in the campaign. We've, we've had a governor's race that has yes. gotten almost no attention, right. Right. even in Texas, much less right. nationally. That's true. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, uh, and, and we all know why. I mean, the polls are, are, are overwhelmingly in favor of Governor Abbott's re-election. But uh, what kind of issues do you see driving state politics right now? I mean, I mean Beto and, and, and Ted Cruz have basically sucked up all the oxygen. And they're, mm -hmm. I mean, legitimately not really talking about state issues they're they're running for the US Senate but what I mean what do you what do the three of you see as the issues that seem to be driving what what seems to me to be a pretty sleepy except for the Beto uh, Ted race seems to be a pretty sleepy election year in Texas yeah well one of the one of the issues would be um, uh, well one of the issues is immigration and and what to do with immigration and recognizing mm -hmm. the federal government is doing whatever it is doing yeah. with immigration. Uh, the role of the, the state, especially because... Build Texas, that wall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> especially because Texas is right here, uh, right. kind of the front lines of the immigration question. So that's certainly one that uh, that comes up. And um, and was, that one bleeds over to education because we're talking about a lot of young immigrants with right. families. And so right. we have a, a substantial fraction of the kids in the school system. Yeah. And, and, and related to that, of course, was the effort in a number of communities to become so-called sanctuary cities or not. They were calling themselves freedom cities or something. So they weren't labeled sanctuary cities. But in effect, uh, taking on that, um, uh, that, that, that as, a, as, a, as a policy. Uh, and, and the state's efforts to kind of nip that in the bud and basically to preempt local governments from being able to do something like that. So we're seeing preemption of local governments as an issue. I think water is going to be an issue uh, that's being discussed a bit um, and water resources primarily as, as an issue. Immigration, um, beyond that, I haven't seen much. I haven't seen much either. And it is, I hadn't really even thought about that till you mentioned it, Greg, that there hasn't been really any focus, uh, at least in the news that I've seen on really any of the statewide races except the Senate race. And it must just be in a, a, a consequence of just limited kind of attention. Um, and that one's really dominating because it's symbolizing to a lot of people some of the things going on throughout the country. And so it's becoming and, this sort of like symbolic and, battle. And uh, seems to be competitive, at least competitive. until recent weeks. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I guess the one for governor just doesn't draw attention because it's less competitive um, and it doesn't have that kind of, uh, what's the word for it, uh, kind of reality television feel to it, mm -hmm. that the stuff that the, the Senate does with kind mm -hmm. of the 
way that Ted Cruz runs a campaign and the way that Beto O'Rourke has been, it's kind of one that appeals to a lot of a, uh, media attention, I yeah. think. And, uh, and the money that Beto's raised. Laurie, do, I mean, do you see anything that we've missed in terms of the, the state the state campaigns this this season? There, there's, I've, I've seen some folks talking about tax reform. Uh, about Sta- the, at the, the property, state level, at the, at the yeah. state level, talking yeah. about property tax reform, uh, talking uh, about kind of general, the state taxes are too high. But I mean, this is all this is a, a perennial. I guess in some of the congressional races, not so much in where we live here in College Station, where our mm-hmm. congressional race isn't that competitive. Mm-hmm. But in some of the competitive seats, I guess the the. The issue that seems to be driving a lot of congressional races nationally, healthcare, does seem to be a, a, an issue in in some of those races in the suburbs of Houston and and then the suburbs of Dallas, uh, and that of course just mirrors what we're hearing about about uh, competitive congressional seats around the country. I was surprised. Um, it's always this way, but speaking of the competitiveness in elections, when I I mean I voted today. And there's a lot of just, I mean, we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of uncontested mm-hmm. right. seats mm-hmm. um, throughout the ballot. <laughs> you yeah. know? I mean, yeah. there was like right. 10 or 11 of them were just completely uncontested. And I think most of them were judges, actually, yeah. mm-hmm. just completely uncontested, which is which is wild, I think. Well, we also had here in, in Brazos County a lot of county uh, races, mm-hmm. like the county judge, who is the county executive mm-hmm. in the Texas system. Uh, that was an unopposed mm-hmm. election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I... You can understand it uh, to some extent. I mean, there's ballot fatigue, and you know how many level, how, how many in in, a, in essentially a state where one party is the the dominant, the other party does you know has a hard time recruiting candidates to be sacrificial lambs in yeah. in races that they have no money and very little chance to to run. But it it doesn't speak well to the to the to the, the competitiveness and the choice. In, <laughs> Exactly. Uh, I mean, if we had if we had competitive primary elections for these positions, maybe you can say, well, at least people have a choice. But uh, it's hard to recruit people to run. Politics is hard work, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's especially for these positions that are part time, you know, hardly paid positions or paid paid just a fraction. Uh, it's 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 difficult to get people to run. So we made a commitment to everyone that we would wrap up on our hour mark, and so we are we are now three. No five minutes over that. So um, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up. Thank you so much for uh, listening. Thank you so much for Dr. Lori Taylor and Dr. Ann Bowman for joining Greg and I for our conversation this week and letting us uh, uh, pester you with, uh, or pepper you, I suppose, with lots of education questions. And, and pester you. And pester you, I suppose. And, and I think we can we can probably do a little tease for our next yeah. podcast. We're going to have our, our colleague, Jessica Gottlieb, who's doing some very interesting teaching on a, a project that that's national, actually, a number of universities are teaching seminars on on uh, democratic decay, and we thought that that would be a really interesting post-election uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'll have Jessica on. Uh, we'll talk about the research that's been done internationally on on what leads to democratic decay, and that'll uh, that'll lead us that will segue us right into a roundtable discussion of the results of the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also want to thank our, our good friends at Downtown Uncorked for giving us the space to have the podcast. And we look forward to to uh, welcoming everybody back uh, when we put up the next episode. Uh, yep. Thank you so much, Greg. And uh, thanks, everyone. Yeah.